Well, greetings, Cove Church. Man, so exciting to be able to say that today. Uh, if you missed the announcement last week, New Hope Eugene has been given a new name for a new season, and we are now known as Cove Church. God gave us this new name. If you want to hear more about the whole process that led to that new naming, uh, you can look at it on our webpage. There's links to that uh, just to get you informed as to what God is doing. Our new name is, is another sign that God is up to some stuff in, in our midst. He's doing new things, and God is inviting us to a faith that is actually in step with Him, a faith that moves. And that is really the essence of the series that we find ourselves in, a series out of the book of James that we're calling Move, uh, Faith in Motion. It's talking about this idea that our relationship with God must always have an outward expression. Uh, that genuine faith will produce genuine fruit. Now, allow me to begin by addressing a little bit of confusion around this idea. The confusion is found in thinking that my work somehow creates my relationship with God. It doesn't. I can't work enough to somehow earn my way to God. What this does mean, what we are talking about, is that God's work in my life will produce God's fruit out of my life. That's what we're talking about. Here's a highly simplified and perhaps uh, base illustration of that. Faith is like a Costco hot dog, all right? I love Costco hot dogs. I think they're amazing. I think they're wonderful. But I know when I receive that Costco hot dog into my life, it is going to be coming out of my life for the next six hours. As I experience that Costco hot dog, I love it, but it's going to come out producing fruit from my life for the next six hours. It's just going to bubble out of me. It comes back. It's not my work. It's the work of the Costco hot dog in me coming out of my life. You see what I mean by that? Now, in a far more impactful sense and eternal sense, our faith, our relationship with God is to be like that. <laughs> that because of my relationship with God, something comes out of my life. Something redemptive. Something life-giving. See, faith is not created by my action. Action is instead created by my faith. This is faith in motion. So what does that look like for us? Well, James chapter 2 is really going to help us with that as we allow our relationship with Jesus to create movement in our lives. And the first thing I would love to point out is this. Faith calls us to move away from worldly division. Faith calls us to move away from worldly division. James 2 verses 1 through 4, here's what it says. In fact, let's read it together. Big voices go. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Remember, James is writing here to a very partial type of culture. There was 
prejudice and hatred that was based on class and ethnicity and nationality and wealth and religious background, all kinds of prejudices. In the ancient world, people were both implicitly and explicitly categorized because they were either a Jew or a Gentile, or they were a slave, or they were free, or they were rich, or they were poor. Now, I wish I could say that that type of thing ended in those barbaric ancient days, but as we are all profoundly aware, those types of divisions, they remain with us even today. It's an ongoing expression of the deeply flawed and sinful nature of humanity. Yet the truth we get to remember is this, where we want to divide, God wants to multiply. So James is pointing out that a significant aspect of the work of Jesus is to break down these walls that divide humanity and to bring forth one people in Jesus a people made one through Christ's work on the cross, a work for all. But see, that doesn't just happen. It's an outflow. It's a work that comes from our faith. It's fruit. It's what James was challenging the church into. And as he writes this to the church, James paints for them a very different picture of life than the, the way they were seeing life expressed in their culture. Namely, he was painting for them a picture of a world without favoritism, without partiality, without discrimination, without these man-made divisions set up around outward appearances. See, James is warning us that we can misvalue people because we are grading them on a scale that has nothing to do with God's value system. There's a story about a Chicago bank that once asked for a letter of recommendation on a young man who was from Boston, and he was being considered for employment with that Chicago bank. And so they wrote to this Boston investment house that he'd been connected to, and that Boston investment house could not say enough good things about that young man. They said, oh yeah, his father, his father was a Cabot, and his mother was a Lowell, and further back was a happy blend of Salton stalls and Peabody's and many of Boston's other finest families. And so they gave this recommendation on that young man without hesitation because of his family background. And several days later, the Chicago bank sent a note saying the information that they supplied to them was altogether inadequate. And it read this way, we are not contemplating using the young man for breeding purposes, just for work. <laughs> In short, they place value on the wrong things on externals that had nothing to do with the heart. To show favoritism reveals to us that we misunderstand who is important to God and who is blessed by God and who is blessed in God's sight. And when we assume so often that the rich man is somehow more important to God or more blessed by God than the poor person, all that really reveals is that our value system is placed on the world's way of looking at things, on material riches, but not on kingdom virtue. 
And it can also show a very selfish streak in us because it's possible that deep down we want to favor the rich person over the poor person because we believe we'll get more out of the rich person. Oh, that rich person can do favors for us that the poor person could never do. The rich person can get us the good seats and the good tickets and the good trips. And here James wipes all of that out, saying not only did you just make yourself a judge, but you're a judge with evil thoughts. I mean, we get it, right? This is how the world works. This is what makes the world go around. But guess what? This is not how the kingdom works. This is not what makes, makes a kingdom go around. You know, um, when I was in high school, I had a high school ministry leader after I came to faith. Um, he was a ministry leader and he took an interest in me. And I was drawn to him, at least in part, because he came from such a very different world experience than, than I did, especially when it came to wealth. Uh, he came from great wealth in his family, lots of money, and I'm just this middle-class Redmond kid. So I was just, I was just fascinated by, by his life experience and kind of all that stuff. Now, I'm sure this leader did not have any devious intentions. He just wanted to in, invest in my life, this, the life of this young man. And so what he would do is he would, he would take me out with him and he'd take me shopping. And so I'd end up buying clothes like his. And then he'd take me to get a haircut. And I'd end up getting a haircut like his. And he'd take me to buy sunglasses. And I'd buy sunglasses like his. And he'd take me to get cologne. And so I'd get the same cologne as he had. And then we'd ride around in his cool car. And for a season, I became someone I wasn't. I was kind of like his little mini-me, you know. And I, I started to look like him, and I started to talk like him, and I realized I was actually losing myself. I was so drawn to him, and yet I was missing something of who I was. And eventually, I had to go another way. I had to find who I really was again. In part, that's what James is talking about here, that there is this invisible pull for us to elevate some people and minimize others. It's part of sin in us. And we who love Jesus must fight that pull. We've got to see people differently. That's the first thing. Because faith calls us to move from this worldly division. Now, second thing is this. Faith calls us to move towards kingdom honor. Move towards kingdom honor. James 2, 5 through 7. Let's read it together. Big voices go. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So if we were to move away from falsely dividing one another, what do we move towards? What we move towards is a kingdom honor. All right, Meaning we look at people in the same way that Jesus looks at people. 
it's easier, easy for us often, I think, to kind of be drawn to people with wealth and celebrities and, and that sort of thing. But Jesus actually told, tells us in the book of Matthew that that can be an obstacle to his kingdom. Look at this, Matthew 19, 24. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So when it comes to God's kingdom, riches is not automatically a benefit. In fact, it can be a barrier. Now, to guard against us all getting sort of uppity right here, saying, well, that applies to that rich person I know, or that celebrity, or that person up on the hill. Yeah, they should be listening to this. Don't forget, if we live in America, we are among the richest people on the planet just by being here. So the point for all of us is we have to start seeing the world through a kingdom lens. Removing these obstacles between us and God. And Jesus points out that yes, a potential barrier to that relationship with God is our wealth. Because it can keep us from his kingdom, from seeing his kingdom. It can blind us from seeing his kingdom, from seeing Jesus. It can distort our view. Here's an example. Uh, we once uh, were moving into a ministry role as, as associate pastors and pastors over the worship ministry of a church we were part of. And so they were kind of introducing me into that leadership role. And so we gathered at this house and there was, I don't know, 30 or 40 people that were in this big living room and they were introducing me. I didn't know them well. I didn't know that team well. And so they were introducing me there. They're all in a circle and they're all in seats. And I, I walked in and I was standing there as they began to introduce me. There were, there were seats to my left and to my right, people sitting in them. There was a woman sitting right here. And uh, so she's sitting down and I'm just standing there. You know, I hadn't met these people very much, didn't know them. And I'm standing there and uh, she's looking at me out of her peripheral vision. She's, she's looking ahead, but she can just see me out the corner of her eye. And so I'm standing there. They're beginning to introduce me. I'm waiting to speak and address this group of people. And uh, she just reaches up and starts to pat my bottom. And my first thought was... <laughs> Man, these people are friendly. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is a really loving crowd. And, and so I, I, my reaction is to look down at her, and she looks up at me, and she's just like, <gasps> she's just mortified, right? And I think, I think it's hilarious. I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. And she's just, oh, just, I can't believe I did that. And what had happened was because she was looking out her peripheral, she thought I was her husband. See, evidently we look similar in that way from that angle. And so it was like, hey, hubby, how's it going? And I wasn't hubby. And so it was a moment that reminded me again that we don't always see right. <laughs> in fact, we can see distorted when it comes to God's kingdom. In fact, our default when it comes to God's kingdom is actually to see wrong. And one of the truths that James is referring to here is that God wants us to see correctly, which is that God actually specially blesses the poor of this world. As this passage says, they're chosen to be rich in faith. Why is that? How could that be? Well, one reason I would add or, or bring up would be this. It's that when you're poor in this world system, you're forced to trust God, aren't you? 
you don't have any buffer. For the, for the wealthy, you know, when your fridge is full and your rent is paid and your retirement is all set, in a practical daily kind of sense, we just, we don't really need God. But when you're without those resources, I recognize my need for Jesus every day. Jesus, I need you to eat today. Jesus, I need you for shelter today. Jesus, I am desperate for you. Be with me. Help me. And in that, the poor person then can be far more rich in faith because they are trusting God on a daily have-to basis. They're not numbed by the stuff that can surround so many of our lives. Not to mention that in Matthew 5, Jesus says, it is the poor in spirit that the kingdom of heaven belongs to, and it's the meek that inherit the earth. I think a lot of times we view the poor and the meek kind of, kind of as the renters of this world, yet in God's kingdom, they're the landlords. You see how the kingdom of God is, is so different that everything is flipped. What we see one way, God actually sees the other. We don't see right. Our view is distorted. How, how does that work then? How does it work its way out? Well, think about it like this. Everything that matters when it comes to eternity is about relationship with God, right? Everything that matters is about relationship with God. We understand that this life is a vapor. It's here and it's gone. It's just, it's just nothing. So everything that matters for eternity is about relationship with God. So that being the case, we must see these potential obstacles to that relationship with God. And in this passage, it's talking about a potential obstacle being wealth. Why? Here's why. Because the rich person may put their trust in God, but the poor person has to. We've got to be aware that this can get in the way of our relationship with the King of Kings. My ability to run to comfort can keep me from running to Christ. So what's the answer? Well, we will certainly get into this in greater detail in some series that are ahead. But here's one thought I'd give you today. Kingdom people are conduits of resources, not just consumers of them. You hear that? Kingdom people are conduits of resources, not just consumers of them. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are given much so we can then give much. And we can choose this in our lives. And we can also recognize that at times, God will make us uncomfortable so we'll get back to that place. And here's the great news of our time. <laughs> God is giving us great opportunities to be uncomfortable. And He can use all of the challenges we're facing to finally strip away our comforts and compel us to run to Christ. With all that we have, God, use it all. Take it all. Use it. The question is, will we do that today? Will we surrender everything? Will we choose to see the world as Jesus sees the world? Will we move towards kingdom honor? That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. Faith calls us to move in shared 
mercy. James 2, 8 through 13, let's read it. Big voices go. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. First, he is making the case that if we break just one part of the law, we broke all of it. The idea being like this, you can have a perfect wonderful bowl of soup, but if you put just one drop of poison in it, the whole bowl of soup is ruined. It's like I, I, you can go to restaurants in town, they can have amazing soups, but then they'll put this little bit of kale in there. It's like you had great soup and then you got to drop the kale in there? Why'd you do that? You ruined the whole thing. And he's saying that favoritism that, that comes out of us, this favoritism that comes out of us is like that one drop of poison, that one little bit of kale. And it's no different than that one act of adultery, that one act of murder. And yes, I did just connect kale to murder. They are connected. You can read about it. It's, it's all in there. It's a real thing. It all has the same effect. It has this ability to take what was good and corrupt it. So, so what's the answer? Where is our hope then? In the midst of this, these good things being corrupted, where's our hope? Our hope is found in mercy. I love what the scripture says in Micah 6 verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? That this whole conversation of this passage around how we divide and how we show favoritism and our prejudices, how we wrongly prefer one person over another, it's just one more reminder that we desperately need mercy. Because we don't see how Jesus sees. God, have mercy on me. And in God's kingdom, we receive mercy in the same measure that we give mercy. Jesus said it another way in the book of Matthew. He said, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what does that look like then for us? It looks like this. Our first step is to be profoundly aware of our need for mercy, and our second step is to become profoundly generous in offering mercy to others. Because this passage tells us all of that will be taken into account when the books of our life is finally closed. The truth is, God will always default to mercy for us unless we default to judgment for others which means when we are merciless, we actually forfeit our right to mercy. We must receive mercy, but in that same measure, we must give mercy away. 
And often, it's right here that we stop. This can be where we stall. This can be where our faith stops moving because we love the forgiveness and the mercy that we get from Jesus. But the minute you hurt me, then my mercy for you is off the table. And you go on a very special list in my life. Yet this passage reveals to us a shared mercy, receiving and giving. So the question for us then is, well, who's on my list? Who's on your list today? Because this passage tells us that mercy actually triumphs over judgment. Maybe there's someone then that you know that needs to move from your list of judgment to your list of mercy. Jesus is calling each of us to look at the places and the people that we have withheld mercy from and to seek him to do it a better way, to add them to the list of mercy. Because faith calls us to a shared mercy. I'll wrap up with this story. Uh, Many of you uh, came out to our outdoor services a couple of weeks ago, which was so wonderful to be able to see each other. We were at the Lane Event Center, and, and, and the teams did such a wonderful job. It's so great to see many of you. And I know many of you are still watching online and not yet ready to, to gather, and, and it's wise for you not to. People have compromised immune systems. A big part of our church, probably half of our church, would be in that place right now. And we're all in this together. So, man, it's just wonderful to have you in, in any way we can, online or in person. Person. But a group of us did gather for those two services, and it was, it was a great experience, so great to see people, but, but it was great for us. It wasn't necessarily awesome for the neighbors uh, nearby who are not used to events being in that space at that early of the morning, and we discovered that kind of the hard way. And uh, so we had gotten there and we began to rehearse and it wasn't long after rehearsal that we, we saw neighbors appearing on the fence line and they had things to say to us that were, were really quite spicy. And, uh, and then we, we saw police officers begin to appear and talk to us before the services. We're getting a lot of calls and, and it was like calls like, man, when we get this many calls, we think it's like a giant party that we need riot gear for. The, that level of calls was happening and, and we didn't know we were causing that and we heard that from the police officers and the, and the neighbors and, and, and so we, we tried to bring down our volume. We changed some stuff for the, the services that day. Um, but the damage had kind of already been done. And, and in fact, there was even one person in second service kind of wanted to get to the stage to say some stuff, which our safety team did an amazing job of helping that not to happen. So it was kind of a stressful <laughs> underlayment of those services because I was wondering if we'd be shut down at any moment. And bigger than that, because our heart is always to try to love our community and bless our community, it just felt like, oh man, we, we kind of missed it here. And so we were, we were responding as a team and trying to figure out, okay, we, we know we, we stepped on some, some toes here and we stepped on some people that we didn't mean to, we didn't have to, and we were trying to figure out how to respond. And so we just decided we're just going to respond in honesty and in humility and, and just go, wow, we're, we're sorry. And so that, that took about three different forms. Uh, one is we, we put these, 
little gifts together, uh, little sunshine boxes that have some fun things for families in them. And we gave like, like uh, close to a hundred of those to the surrounding neighbors and the apartments around there. And, and it was a little letter of apology that I'd written. Uh, just, we didn't know uh, how this was, was going out, how far the sound was going. We didn't realize uh, it was just church to us, but it wasn't normal for everybody there. And so we had this letter of apology. We also uh, ended up buying breakfast for the crew of police officers on that Sunday for that shift of police officers who had to come out on their day and tell the church, if you can quiet down, it would be great. We, we felt bad that we used their time up, so we, we purchased uh, breakfast for them. And then I, it was up to me to respond to the emails that found their way to me. And of the, there was four that made their way uh, directly to me. And, uh, and I developed a response that was essentially the same thing that was in those letters that, or the, the boxes, the gifts we came out and gave to folks. And the response was just one of, man, we're sorry. You know, we didn't know it was doing this. We tried to adjust, but, but it was probably too late by then. And we wanted to be a blessing. We missed it with you. We just offer an apology. And, uh, and what was fascinating to me is I got four of those kinds of emails. They were hot emails. They were, they were PG-13 and up. And, uh, and so I would give that response, and immediately two out of four responded back to me with these things that were like, oh, well, thank you for, for responding. And, and, you know, as I think about it, there's some, some things that kind of helped me when, when I thought about that whole day. And I used to think of, of worship as just sort of quiet introspection, but I heard you guys worship and it was sort of exuberant. And maybe there's room for that. I had one person say something like that, you know. And, and, and then they'd all say, you know, I, we understand better now. Thank you for explaining that. And then they would end with a blessing to us or just a goodwill and we want the best for your congregation. And I thought, that's amazing. How, how, how are you doing this, Jesus? How are you redeeming this? And then I, I had one of uh, a third email came back. And, uh, and this one, they weren't having it. They were like, yeah, right. You know, I gave them the same response. They're like, nope, I'm not buying it. You guys still don't, don't love your neighbors, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, we're not going to win that one. But here's what, what was so fascinating. So I got that email. And then five, four or five days later, I got an email from that same person, and they said, within about an hour of me sending that second email to you, I received this box, <laughs> a gift from your church, and it included that letter of apologizing and all those, those, those things, and the, these little gifts to say that, that, that you matter to us. And, and they said, that showed me that, that your church really is serious about loving your neighbors. And, and they said, you know, I'm not really that church kind of person, but I, I, really, um, I really believe you, and I really, really want the best for your life. And I just watched that, and I went, man, Jesus, it's incredible that you're using this in this way. And I'm convinced that it's because of these principles that are in play that we don't relate to people as outsiders or as someone who's not worth our effort but we relate to people as our brothers and sisters, all people. And, and that we, at least in our, our limping and broken way, we tried to honor. We tried to do what we could to make it right. And to listen to what others had to say to us, not just write them off. To approach in humility and to seek 
mercy. It changed everything. And I, I'm still shocked by it, and we still get reports like that. But, but even though I'm shocked by it, I really shouldn't be shocked by it. Because this is the way of Jesus. This is what can change everything in our world. This is faith in action. So we get to ask ourselves some very important questions, and these same questions will be available for you at the end of the service, but I want you to begin asking them and answering them in your minds right now, just to get us thinking, and here's the first one. Where am I dividing people into categories that God never divides them into? Where am I doing that? Secondly, where am I missing kingdom honor and just honoring what the world says is good? And lastly, where am I walking in arrogance and refusing to see how much I need mercy and must therefore be willing to give that mercy away? These are the questions that will help us move from a faith that is barren to a faith that bears fruit, a faith that is made by God to move. Let's pray.